even the candidates who don't win end up with positive impressions among voters that lets them run for future offices. I'm Eric Wilson, managing partner of Startup Caucus, an investment fund and incubator for Republican campaign technology. Welcome to the Business of Politics show. On this podcast, we bring you into conversation with the entrepreneurs who build best-in-class political businesses, the funders who provide the capital, and the operatives who put it all together to win campaigns. Our guest today is David Konevsky of 3D Strategic Research. He's a data-driven strategist with a long career at organizations like the National Republican Senatorial Committee and the Republican State Leadership Committee, as well as experience as a campaign manager on the ground. David and I recently collaborated on a poll in two Virginia congressional districts to understand some of the effects of ranked choice voting in primary contests. In our conversation today, we discussed that poll, what we learned, and what Dave sees as the future of polling. David, we had a unique opportunity to do what is kind of a rare A-B test in Virginia 7th and Virginia 10th. For this survey, what were some of the similarities and differences that made these two districts worth testing out? So most A-B tests on campaigns really focus on kind of micro-tests. What's the impact of voter contact? You know, oh, this turnout piece or digital with a control group to see, okay, here's the people who got it, here's the people who didn't. But it makes it really difficult to measure big things. Like, how do you measure candidate quality? How do you measure election systems? Because obviously, you know, there's not always a control group. You know, there's a lot of unique factors. But here, what we did by having two districts, it's not a pure A-B test, but it's probably as close as possible when it comes to measuring ranked choice voting, because one district had it, one district didn't. But the districts are really similar. One, they're neighboring districts in Virginia. They're both in suburban and exurban Virginia. Both are in the D.C. market. So they kind of get covered by, you know, D.C. television stations. If candidates are advertising, they're advertising on D.C. broadcast. Both districts had multi-candidate primaries to go up against incumbent Democrats who flipped districts in 2018 that had actually been Republican-held districts before that. So again, you're seeing a lot of similarities about who the districts are, their geography, Both had very crowded fields. In the 10th district, we had 11 candidates running. That was the district with ranked choice voting. And in the 7th district, we had six candidates running. So again, a lot of similarities. There were a little, a few differences. The 10th had a firehouse primary that was run by the party. And that was the one with ranked choice voting, while the 7th had a state-run primary with just the first choice. And so our goal with this kind of A-B test wasn't to kind of get what the ballot was, because we have that from election results. The reason why we did the survey was to look at what were the attitudes of the voters, one, about the election, about the process they just went through, and then look at how they viewed the candidates, look at how they viewed the process to see how do these voters think about ranked choice voting and the candidates and see what impact ranked choice voting had where voters were more exposed to it. And just a little bit more context for our listeners. So in in Virginia, the different congressional districts parties have the ability to determine their method of nomination. So they could do a convention, they could do a a firehouse primary, or they could sort of hand it over to the state and and do the the typical thing that that you're used to. Obviously, conventions have been going on for a long time in Virginia, uh, but with the rise of COVID and, and restrictions, uh, on in-person gatherings, the, the Republican party in Virginia started looking at ranked choice voting in these sort of unassembled conventions or firehouse primaries 
as a way to preserve some of those mechanisms. And so it's been a really fascinating development seen on the ground. And, and of course, we, we got a really cool opportunity to see what impact that has in these two neighboring congressional districts. Dave, one of the challenges we faced uh, was finding voters in the 10th district because it was a party run process, which typically brings in a smaller pool of voters because you don't have as many locations, you don't have that mail-in ballot component, you don't have the early voting as widespread. And of course, we don't have party registration in Virginia. So walk us through how you tackled that to get the sample size that you needed. So usually when you're trying to figure out who's a, a voter, whether it's a general election or a primary voter, you look at kind of uh, what is past behavior, because past behavior is indicative of future uh, future behavior. The problem was here, there was really no kind of good precedent for what this election looked like. Uh, because we don't always have party-run firehouse primaries in Virginia, particularly with redistricting. Um, you know, there were parts of the 10th that were new. Um, and so, for example, if we had just looked at everybody who voted in the 2021 uh, governor's um, uh, unassembled uh, convention, we would have only had about 5,000 uh, voters who cast a ballot in that in the 10th district. And what ended up happening was there were about 15,000 people who voted in the 10th firehouse primary this year. So if we had kind of looked at just that universe, it would have been a little too small. Um, so what we looked at was who were people who had voted in past Republican primaries? We started with that. But then we also looked at who were some new registrants who may be some lo uh, low propensity voters and added them into the sample mix uh, to make sure we kind of caught them because those people may be different. And that's really important, I think, for firehouse primaries um, because... Um, each candidate might bring their own unique uh, friends and networks, even if they're not past Republican primary voters. So we haven't had the voter file come back yet uh, in either of these districts, but wouldn't be surprised if, you know, there were a lot of first time Vietnamese voters who showed up for Hung Cao uh, because that was kind of his network. Or Janine Lawson might have brought in people from her supervisor district who know her who haven't voted in a Republican primary before. So we were able to kind of use that to kind of capture these people. And uh, we did something similar in the 7th. Um, and what we do see there is in the seventh, again, we don't have the full voter file back, but we do know from the absentee data, we are seeing a lot of new primary voters coming in there. Um, in fact, there were twice as many people who had never voted in a Republican primary who voted absentee than people who voted in four or four. Um, it wasn't Dem crossovers. Uh, it's really just a lot of frequent general election Republicans who are starting to come in. Uh, and that's really important to get a good sample. Um, and it actually worked. So um, one of the things when I was at committees, uh, I always asked for not just, hey, what was the top line data, but look at your unweighted data. And here we actually see um, that uh, when we look at the ballot unweighted versus what the actual election results, they were pretty close. They were all within, you know, two to four points, well within the margin of error of what the actual election results were. So we did a little bit of waiting to get to the actual election, but had really no impact on the data on RCV, things like that. But I think that's really important, not just for this survey, but if you're running for office, you know, yes, you should talk to, you know, high propensity voters because they're very likely to vote. But you need to watch out for these low propensity voters because they really matter in a lot of these uh, races, particularly close races. Yeah. And we ended up having a pretty large pool to um, survey from because you had roughly 15,000 people participate in that 
firehouse primary. Uh, and then over in the seventh, it was around 30,000, uh, give or take. Um, and so we actually had some, some, you know, it was uh, off by a factor of, of two, but not what you would typically see with like a convention where it would be really small. And, and Dave, I want to underline something that you, you mentioned there, which is, it came up in my conversation with John Black from the Data Trust uh, in a recent podcast episode, which is that you've got to be very, very careful uh, if you're running a campaign and you're just targeting people based completely on vote history, because to your point, the campaigns would have missed out on these people that might have come from a neighborhood network or a church network if they were only doing their voter contact to people with vote history. And actually, uh, if I can elaborate a little bit more on this, because I think it's actually really relevant. Uh, the seventh district used to be Eric Cantor's district. Um, and I actually did the polling for Dave Brad after he beat Cantor for the general election. Um, in 2016. And um, obviously, that was a huge shock. No one saw that coming. I don't think Brad's team even really saw that coming as well. And people were like, what happened? Because Cantor's pollster had him up like 30 some points. But what was the miss there? And it wasn't just there. It was in 2016. You know, Trump uh, in the uh, in the primaries turnout was way up uh, with a lot of new Trump voters coming in. The error we're seeing really in polling these days isn't asking people who they're voting for. It's figuring out who's going to vote. Uh, to your point, what John Black said. And again, it's in with Cantor's case, it was, oh, we're going to look at people who voted in the last primary. And when turnout went up 50%, they missed a lot of these new voters. And when we went back and looked at who were these new voters was, they weren't Democrats. They were largely soft Republicans and independents who really didn't like Eric Cantor and, you know, came in and that's what changed the electorate there. Another example where we saw a big polling error, and really people aren't talking about that is in Georgia. The public polls at the end had Kemp up about 20 and he won by 50. And yes, they were directionally right. But if the polls had Purdue up 10 and Kemp won by 10, everybody would be like, well, the polls are off. They were off 20 points. Here, even though they were directionally off, a 30-point error is still really important. The reason was because turnout was way, way up. Again, we saw the same thing based on the absentee and early voting, a lot of new primary voters. So again, if you're not really capturing these low propensity voters, uh, making sure they're in the sample, like that's really what's throwing off error. And we interested to see, you know, the cycle from media polling, public polling, you know, how, how that shakes up, because, again, we may be on to another very high turnout midterm electorate. So back to our poll in Virginia, one of our, our first finding was that ranked choice voting produced a better positioned nominee in terms of net favorable image among voters. Talk about how big that gap was and, and what you think contributed to it. So in uh, the seventh district where there wasn't ranked choice voting, uh, Yesley Vega, who ended up winning, she had a good image, uh, a net plus 51 uh, on her favorability. So she had 64% favorable, just 13% unfavorable. But then we let's turn to the 10th district. Hung Cao won that uh, through ranked choice voting. His net image was plus 78. He had an 86% favorable rating among people who voted in the Republican primary. They're just 8% unfavorable. So Cao is at plus 78. Vegas at plus 51, that's a net 27 point difference. And again, uh, having worked at committees um, before, um, there's a lot of incumbent Republican members of Congress who wish they had an 80% favorable rating with their base of Republican primary voters. So that just shows you what did ranked choice voting do? And we'll get a little bit more into that in terms of why the campaign was positive. So, uh, but that really kind of drove Cal's favorability rating. Um, and then when we look at not just favorability, but kind of the definition, um, 
23% of, of Republican primary voters. So we did this survey the day of uh, the election after the polls closed and the day after. So all campaigning had been done. We did it right then. So, um, you know, at that point, voters recall was fresh, all that stuff. They didn't have the chance to kind of go back, uh, you know, especially in the 10th district, the nominee hadn't yet been announced. Um, so even people who voted in the 7th district, 23% of them had either never heard of Yesley Vega or didn't have an opinion of her. Um, for Cal in the 10th, only 6% had never heard of him or didn't have an opinion of him. Um, and that's because with the ranked choice, voter, uh, ranked choice voting, voters have to be more informed. So if you were a Lawson um, or Michonne voter, you still needed to learn about Hung Cow and other candidates for your second, third, and fourth choice. But in the uh, seventh district, um, Crystal Banuk, uh, who was a supervisor, uh, supervisor, a lot of voters came out for her for uh, in her geographic base. You know, they may be her neighbor. They you know know her from a supervisor. They really didn't need to know a lot about the other candidates because they were only voting for their one candidate. So again, it really makes um, the favorable ratings higher. It makes voters more informed about the candidates. Uh, and really sets them up well for the general election by having a very positive impression because you don't really have that negativity um, in a ranked choice voting election where you're trying to build consensus. That's one of the things that proponents of ranked choice voting uh, like to point to is our, our founding fathers of this country wanted and expected an informed electorate and, and ranked choice voting where you're asked to have preferences on all of the candidates really does force you to, to, to learn about all of them, which is one of the reasons that we we saw such high uh, awareness and and favorability uh, for Hung Kao in the 10th district. We also found that that voters in the ranked choice voting primary in that 10th district thought the campaign was more positive than the voters in the traditional primary over in the 7th. Um, I think it was striking that the difference was even more pronounced among moderate primary goers Walk us through those numbers and why a positive campaign is a benefit to a party. Sure. So at the beginning of the survey, we asked voters uh, whether they thought the campaign for the Republican primary had been positive, negative, or a mix of both positive and negatives. And what we found was in both districts, people thought the campaign was positive, but it was much, much more positive in the 10th district. In the 7th district, 50% of voters thought it was positive. 28% of voters said it was a mix of positive and negative. And 9% said it was negative. In the 10th district, 84% said it was positive. 12% said it was a mix of positive and negative, And 2% said it was negative. So we're seeing that positive difference of about 34 points. So much more positive in the 10th district, because again, when you have a very crowded field and you have ranked choice voting, it doesn't make sense to go after the front runner because if they end up coming into second or third place, you need their voters to kind of get over the hump. We also saw, we asked intensity, whether people thought it was a, a mostly positive campaign or somewhat positive campaign. Again, the intensity on kind of how positive it was also really shows up. 24 points, much more positive in the 10th than in the 7th. And again, what I'd point out is, you know, positive campaigns aren't a good in and of themselves. But what they really do is they help strengthen the candidates because Cal had a much more positive image than Vega did, as we talked about earlier. And why does that benefit, uh, Eric, your question about why does it benefit to the, not just the candidate, but to the party, is if I'm Hung Cow now, I don't have to spend as much time shoring up the base as Vega does. Um, and that means Cow and his campaign can now focus more on swing voters. Uh, and you really see that pronounced uh, in, um, uh, as you mentioned, with moderate voters. 
um, in this case, what we would kind of define as soft Republicans and independents who voted in the primary. So in the 10th district, only 13% of voters uh, of these moderate Republican voters said they saw either a negative campaign or a mix of positive and negative. In the 7th district, the majority of these soft Republicans and independents saw negative campaigning of some kind. So again, 38 points uh, higher in terms of kind of that negative level of campaigning. And the reason that's important is because a negative campaign, particularly with these soft Republicans, moderate Republicans, can have an impact on the nominee heading into the general election. Um, Maybe it pushes some uh, GOP-leaning voters off the nominee or it decreases enthusiasm and turnout. Look at the Pennsylvania Senate race. Odds won, you know, with just 31% of the vote. But if you look at a bipartisan AARP poll, among Republicans, he has a 53% favorability rating and 38% unfavorable. So you're seeing that the negatives from the primary are hurting odds in the general election. You're listening to the Business of Politics show. I'm speaking with David Konevsky about a recent poll he conducted for the Center for Campaign Innovation about ranked choice voting. And we're talking about the the impacts that this has on primaries. And I think one of the most surprising, I think our most surprising finding was that ranked choice voting really benefited the runners up, which is which is particularly powerful because, you know, this year we've seen a lot of really competitive GOP primaries where the Democrats have been much more effective at sort of clearing their fields. I'm curious to hear what benefits we saw for the, those runners up in the, the ranked choice voting contest. So if you look at in the 10th district, Janine Lawson came in second. She just got, you know, 29% on the first round of the vote. She ended up with 34% on the final round. Brandon Michonne came in third. He, he's a first-time candidate. Started with just 10% on the first round, 14% on the final round. But both of those candidates ended up with a higher net positive image than Yesley Vega did in the 7th District. So Lawson ended up with a net plus 59% uh, favorable image. Michonne ended up with a net plus 54% favorable image. Both had very low unfavorabilities. And they were both particularly strong in their geographic bases. Um, Lawson was at 85% favorable in Prince William. Michonne was at 74% uh, uh, favorable in Loudoun. And so even though they didn't win, it sets them up well to run for office down the road uh, because they've established a very positive image with Republican primary voters. And quite frankly, if those candidates are listening or people who've worked with them are listening, they should go run for office again, please. You know, I know uh, Janine Lawson is a supervisor. I don't know if she's going to run for re-election or run for chairman of the board. But she's well positioned with Republican primary voters if she wants to run for higher office. Same thing with Michonne. And again, they've established a good uh, a good impression with uh, the GOP base. So puts them well in a primary, but also lets them focus more on swing voters in the general election. But that's not what um, we saw over in the seventh district. No, in fact, the initial front runner in the race, Bryce Reeves, he's a state senator. He ended up with a much higher unfavorability ratings, and in his state senate district, there was a much higher level of negative campaigning. Probably because strategically, every campaign was thinking, well, I just need, you know, 30 to 35 percent of the vote. And if his district's about, you know, 25 to 30 percent of primary voters, it's like if he's if he does really well there, that almost gets him enough to win. So a lot of campaigns were really attacking him, particularly in his state Senate district, to try to hold his votes down. And so that will have some lingering impressions if he runs for reelection. It has implications even on Vega. Like she has some levels of negativity among Reeves and Anderson voters, because, you know, there may have been some contrast there that could have impacts in the general. So again, whereas, you know, not only do Cow and Lawson, Michonne, even Mike Clancy, Mike Clancy only got 5% of the vote, but had over 50% favorability rating. Those guys are well positioned to run for uh, higher office, whether it's Congress, 
supervisor, school board, because of ranked choice voting and the positive campaigns we saw. And there. It, it really speaks to the mechanics of ranked choice voting, particularly in a primary where you have all of the incentives in a primary contest where it's with the plurality, the single first past the post. In order to increase your vote share, you have to take it away from someone else. And so that's what we saw happening in the seventh with ranked choice voting. Your path to victory is actually adding to your coalition. So it, it's really interesting kind of game mechanic that's affecting the outcomes and how campaigns respond to them. We also learned a lot about voters' opinions of ranked choice voting. You know, we in the 10th district, they did this in 2020 for their nomination of Alicia Andrews. They participated in the statewide Republican Party of Virginia chairman's race. They did it in the 2021 unassembled convention. And of course, again, in 2022, we found that 56% of voters in the 10th district preferred ranked choice voting. What do you think this means for, for advocates of ranked choice voting? Look, there's no question it's a positive finding. What we see is when voters are exposed to ranked choice voting, they like it. I would say, as a pollster, you always kind of look at both sides of an issue. The fact that a majority prefer it is good. We still have 40% who prefer the traditional method, particularly around older voters. And it's important for advocates of ranked choice voting to understand kind of why that is. You know, to be a conservative, especially a Birkin conservative, means, you know, you don't want change for change's sake, but change based in tradition. So that's why there's a natural hesitancy among conservatives, Republicans to kind of resist change. Particularly, a lot of push for ranked choice voting has come in kind of in more liberal places like New York City, places like that. So what you really want to focus on is you kind of walk through adoption at the local level and kind of build from the bottom up rather than kind of the top down. Because once people are comfortable with it at the local level, it becomes a lot easier to adapt to higher up. So, you know, if uh, cities use it uh, in uh, city council, town council, mayoral elections, as I've seen them done in places like Utah or California, all of a sudden, when, once voters get exposed to it and they say, hey, do we want ranked choice voting for U.S. Congress, it'll become a lot easier to kind of get that adoption. Uh, and then the other part is also this is kind of within the primary. So it's, you know, particularly with the Republicans, it's within the family. So that makes it a lot easier of like, OK, I'm trying to decide. There's a lot of candidates I like. Which one do I want first or second? It's like, well, what flavor of ice cream do I want? I want all of them, but I have to choose. So let me rank first, second and third as opposed to like, you know. Do I want ice cream or vegetables, you know, uh, in, in a general election? And uh, one of the reasons that we looked at ranked choice voting and measuring its effects in, in these two districts were because we, we've seen over the last um, couple of decades. So between 2000 and 2018, there were three, uh, the number of federal primaries with three or more candidates tripled. So this this trend of crowded, competitive primaries isn't going away. You know, there are a lot of contributing factors here, whether that's social media, which tracks very closely with that timeline, uh, the uh, Citizens United reforms uh, that, that allow wealthy individuals to push one candidate further, you know, all kinds of things at, at play where we're just not going to see these competitive, crowded primaries go away. And I'm curious to hear from your perspective, based on this this survey data, how, how might reforms like ranked choice voting be used to help Republicans stay competitive and, and win more races? The candidates who go through it end up with more positive images. So that helps Republicans in the generals because it unites the base and then it allows them to pivot more to the general election. They don't have to heal the wounds from nasty primaries uh, as a result. And then it also helps Republicans, not in the short term from just, hey, win this election, but long term, 
build a bench of candidates because even the candidates who don't win end up with positive impressions among voters that lets them run for future offices. Um, so, and quite frankly, it probably helps those candidates want to run again because they're not they're not dealing with the negativity of campaigns that say, you know what, I don't want to give this another shot. I don't want my neighbors, my kids to hear all this nasty stuff. So, um, so those are the things that helps Republican candidates win elections and helps recruit more Republican candidates to run for office. All right, Dave, we ask everyone this question. Is there a, a startup that you'd like to see? Maybe there's a problem or challenge out there that you think is unaddressed that would make for a good product? In politics, we use consumer data to improve a lot of our political targeting. The question is, how can people use political data to market to consumers? Uh, and we do see some of this on the right. You know, there's films clearly aimed at Christian audiences. Uh, I, I did some races in Louisiana several cycles ago, Duck Dynasty, their endorsement was very popular, <laughs> things like that. Uh, and we do see uh, entertainment shows on the left that very much look like they're trying to uh, find actively liberal audiences like uh, in their messaging, like The Daily Show or SNL. So I would argue for what would be a production company that focuses on making TV shows and movies that I wouldn't argue are political, but aimed culturally at like heartland conservatives. You know, that production company may not win a lot of Emmys, but as we see a very fractured media environment, could that be a, a financial success by holding and attract an audience? You know, what would Sex in the City or Modern Family look like that's aimed at that audience? A, a, an analogy I'd point to that is uh, look at Coin, the new credit card company uh, that Cory Gardner is involved of. They're appealing to conservatives by offering a percentage of the profits back. So I would argue that that, that is something like could make some money, maybe have some like very downstream cultural impacts, very politically driven, but just kind of aimed at, you know, heartland conservative values could you know be an interesting right. business uh, proposition. Well, my thanks to David for joining us today. You can learn more about this poll at campaigninnovation.org. There's a link in the show notes. If you want to learn more about what we found and, and dig into that data, please remember to subscribe to the Business of Politics show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if today's episode made you just a little bit smarter or gave you a, a new perspective on something, please share it with a friend. It helps us get in front of more people and it makes you look really smart. So please do that. And if you've been listening for a while, Remember to leave us a rating and a review. That really helps with reaching more people so we can get out our uh, message of bringing innovation into to politics and better understanding the business of politics. With that, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.